Um, the course that we're going to be working with, I've called it Manifesting Through the Power of Yoga. And I was just trying to find some very dynamic way of stating what I felt the subject matter was going to be, also based on what has begun to happen to our economy, where having a little more power to manifest is a little more welcome even than it's always been before. Um, the, the textbook, so to speak, is this course, and I don't know what your, your lessons look like. It was called Material Success Through Yoga Principles. It has, might have slightly other names now, Success and Happiness Through Yoga Principles. I've randomly called it Material Success and Happiness Through Yoga Principles because it's a great deal about material success. Except the fact of the matter is that in order to be successful, you have to bring in other elements than just whether or not you have money because that really doesn't qualify as success in terms of most people's lives, even though it appears that it will. Um, I am giving myself the luxury of not having an exact schedule about how long we're going to spend on any lesson. This period of time, which is about eight weeks, I think, or something like that, whatever we scheduled, I said I think we were going to do six lessons. So maybe it's 12 weeks and we were going to do six lessons. But I'm not sure we'll get through six lessons. I really just want to take the time to go through the material without feeling rushed. We just finished the essence of the Bhagavad Gita, in which we set 10 pages per class. Sometimes that was fine. Sometimes I just felt like I was galloping along as fast as I could talk. And I didn't want to be caught like that again. Also, because this is a most interesting course, and I'm going to start by giving you something of the history of how this course came about and what the intention is behind it. And one of the reasons that I wanted to teach it, well, twofold. I'd spent two years teaching the course, The Essence of the Bhagavad Gita. I didn't teach every Tuesday, but it took us two years to basically do 53 classes. It was thrilling. It was a thrilling cycle of teaching, one of the most exciting inspirational for me that I ever had. And I sort of didn't know what else to do afterwards. So I was really looking around for something that had the same substance as that. And this material success course that Swami Kriyananda has written really has, in its own way, the same power and depth that the Gita commentary had. Of course, it's a completely different subject, completely different approach, but it has the same life-changing potential. And already, just sort of preparing this first class, I'm, I'm very up about this because I think it's going to be a very enjoyable and interesting experience for all of us. Um, he's asking nothing less than a complete revolution in our thinking. And that's one of the reasons I don't want to hurry. And as we get into the cycle, it's, it's probable that tonight, I will give you a chance for questions, certainly. It's probable tonight that we won't really have that much discussion just because of what I'm going to be talking about. Each week, we, we really will need to involve ourselves in this because unless you yourselves really grasp what's being taught here, it's not the kind of thing that you can just learn intellectually. Yep, I got it. I was, had the sun in my head. It's ruining that. I thought I was safe, but I wasn't. All right. Um, oh, Yes. Um, because some of you are familiar with the genesis of this course, but not all of you, so let me tell you. In the year 2003, um, Swami Kriyananda uh, was living in Italy in a, a house that he has there near our community, which is outside of Assisi. And he was, let's see, he just turned 83, so he would have been 78 at that time, or 77. He was an el elderly. There's no way you can get around that. Recently, he was speaking of having so many old friends and someone said, perhaps you should call us long-time friends. He said, no, old friends. That's really what we are now. <laughs> so um, at the age of 77, he finished writing the book, I believe it was Conversations with Yogananda. And as he was finishing that book, that book represented the last... Um, when, when he was a, a disciple of Yogananda, living in Los Angeles with Yogananda, with Master, as I call him, Master told him to write down his words. And Swamiji kept these notebooks of all the things that Master said to him. And starting with the path in 1976 and in the essence of self-realization, and then in conversations with Yogananda, finally in 2003, he finished, empty, he emptied those notebooks into published works. He described in the introduction to conversations with Yogananda that he 
attended those notebooks the way a devoted father would tend the well-being of an ailing child. They were like the most valuable thing, and when he would move households, he would take them personally from place to place. He kept them in a fireproof safe because they were literally, of course, irreplaceable. And so when he finally finished writing from those notebooks, he just had this really strong feeling that, well, he would die now because he'd done the last thing that he really felt he had to do. But he was very surprised when instead of that, the the guidance came to him extremely powerfully that he should move to India and try to establish Ananda in India. So Ami Kriyananda had lived in India from 1958 to 1962 and left against his will, in essence, when the organization he was part of, Self-Realization Fellowship, expelled him from there, and he was in India on assignment from SRF, and when he was expelled from SRF, they also arranged it so that he couldn't get back to India. So he'd actually managed a decade later to visit, but he'd been doing work there to build for Yogananda, which was totally stopped, and then just sat all these decades. And so he felt that, well, what he was through with was a lot of what he'd done in the West, and now it was time for him to go to India. Um, He pretended that the question was up for discussion and actually had several of us come over from America to to talk about it because it was a big thing for Ananda to take on the idea of a whole new country and for him to go to such a difficult place to live at his age. Um, We arrived in Assisi. We arrived in Rome. We took the train to Assisi. We met Swami Kriyananda on the platform of the train. We walked over to have dinner before the pizza was delivered, it was clear that Swami was moving to India. <laughs> it was like the discussion was really short. By the time the pizza was delivered, um, half of those of us who'd come from America were on the phone booking tickets to India because it was like if he's going to show up there, somebody has to go ahead. And I mean, where is he going to land? Where is he going to live? What are we going to do? Which led to a marvelous experience myself and four or five others of going over to New Delhi and helping to set up an ashram and It was great fun. We were there for about three weeks. That's a whole different story. So Swamiji arrives in this country of India and he he surprises all of us because some of us have traveled on pilgrimage there and we go to the old um, shrines and all those sorts of places and he wanted to go back to Delhi because New Delhi was where he was in 1962 and that's where he wanted to start his work. It's the capital of the country. We ended up in what's called a suburb of New Delhi which is called Gorgaon. And one of the characteristics of Gorgaon, it's the, it's the mega mall capital of India. I don't know how many of you have traveled in India, but you know, a, a, an extraordinary westernization is taking place in that country. And one of the things that it's characterized by is they're building all these huge air-conditioned malls. Air-conditioned is a big word there. Air-conditioned malls, multi-story malls with um, movie theaters and restaurants and all these shops and so on. And you know, for those of us who, who go to India with this real sort of romantic idea of old India. The last thing we wanted was malls, and we were totally convinced that Swami would not want to be anywhere near them, that he wouldn't like them. Of course, the first thing he does when he lands, he says, let's go to the mall. <laughs> and, and we wander around these malls, and Swami has this look on his face, which I'm, I'm, I recognize, when he's really being very thoughtful. So we walk through these places of, of you know, the most appalling kind of westernization, um, fortunately, they're mostly vegetarian, so you don't really have Burger King, except Veggie Burger King and so on. But uh, you have TJ Fridays and, you know, all just all the regular, it's, it's not even worth explaining. But anyway, there we are. And he's like totally drinking it in, you know, wanting to go to this store, wanting to go to that store, wanting to stop here and have a soda or have a little popcorn. I'm trying to deal with this. Have a soda, have a little popcorn, you know, just like go up and down the escalators. And whew. So then he really starts talking to us and he starts saying, you know, India is much too important a country on the planet at this time because it's, it's the guru of the world and, and it is the place where the true teachings of what is called Sanatana Dharma, which is um, life is a spiritual experience and God-realization is the goal. Even though the culture of India has, is becoming as confused as any other, nonetheless, that culture and that tradition has kept that thought alive. 
But he said they can't remain impoverished and they can't remain in a backwater. They have to take their rightful place as leaders. And it's already happening by the huge uh, you know, outflux of Indians in this whole area. There's an enormous number of Indians and it's notable that people who come from India, when they leave that country and get out of the, the difficulty of the actual circumstances of the country, often the people just rise to the top. You know, doctors, lawyers, businessmen, software engineers, some of the finest minds working in America are Indians because it's, a, an, ex, it's an extraordinary culture. There's just no way around it. But they're in this weird transition right now, which is where they're having to accelerate economically. They're having to figure out how Western they want to be. They're all, you know, somewhat jettisoning their, their millennia-old traditions in embracing the West, and yet they're quickly discovering that that's not really satisfactory. As Swamiji often says to the Indian people there, he says, don't worry, he said, spirituality is in the soil of this country, meaning that there's been so many saints and sages there that no matter how hard you try, you're not really going to be able to get away from it. So he said, this is a a messy transition, but we're just going to have to go through it before the balance is restored. So the biggest issue that is being faced in India right now is an economic one, partly based on just a chaos in their system, overpopulation, lots lots and lots of things. So fast forward a little. India proved as difficult on Swami's body as he anticipated it would be. Plus, there's a much more subtle reality, which is any, any endeavor, and this is an important principle that we will be talking about in the course of these lessons, any new endeavor requires energy. And that energy has to come from somewhere. I mean, there's tremendous energy in the universe. There's limitless energy in the universe. Yogananda used to go like this and say, there's enough energy in a pinch, a pinch of your own flesh to keep the city of Chicago in electricity for a week. And, you know, we're too tired to get up in the morning. And so he actually taught among his Yogananda's teachings is something called the energization exercises, which is a way of using your willpower to draw the energy of the universe into your system and then be able to manifest, you know, wonderful ways all these teachings integrate. Um, but, uh, oh yes, uh, so, so whenever a new enterprise is started, or if you set your mind to anything you're going to do, um, I read uh, the biography of Lance Armstrong, and you know many people accuse him of, of uh, using drugs and so on like that. I don't, I have, I have no opinion, and I prefer to consider him innocent rather than guilty. So quite apart from any of that, he was talking about how hard he works. And he was, he was defending himself against the charges of drugs by just simply outlining how hard he works. The workout he does every day. And then he emphasizes the word every day. Christmas, New Year's, my birthday, you know, the birth of my children, the birthdays of my children, every day. And does that mean, of course, that he doesn't do a lot of other things? Yes, of course that means that. Because in order to have the energy that he needs when he's going to perform as an athlete, he has to draw that energy from many other areas of his life and focus. And if anyone imagines that they can accomplish without drawing energy to a focus and increasing that energy, well, it's a dream. That's called the free lunch that everyone is looking for that is not really offered to us. Now, oftentimes an individual of the, of the level of consciousness that Swami Kriyananda has, um, a Sanskrit word for, for um, doing penance in order to create energy, in order to accomplish something, the word is tapasya. It's a wonderful word in Sanskrit, tapasya. And um, tapasya can be translated in, with two interesting ways into English. One translation of it is austerity, which is what we would normally think, living on nettles, you know, not having heat in your house, going without sleep, or whatever you might do to deprive yourself to do an austerity like that. The other word is devotion. And both words are an exact definition of tapasya. Because we tend to think of a sacrifice as being pain-producing, whereas if we're actually focusing our energy by withdrawing it from peripheral reasons, peripheral interests, in order to accomplish something, that's also an act of devotion. 
And very often, great yogis, Yogananda writes about this in Autobiography of a Yogi, can do tapasya for the sake of impersonal causes. They can do tapasya to work out the karma of their own disciples. They can do tapasya to gather energy to create a good work. A one, a one sadhu who came to Ananda village, the first Ananda community, after it had been in existence about eight years, he turned to Kriyananda and he said, somebody did a lot of tapasya to create this community. Now, oftentimes, the great yogis will take, do that tapasya by running difficulties through their bodies. In other words, they become ill. They manifest symptoms of illness. But it's not a karma of their own. It's drawing to a focus sort of um, different kinds of energy and then doing the penance of running it through their body. Yogananda describes it as a secret yogic technique. And that's all he does to explain it. And I have just told you everything I know about it. But I know that for the first 20 years of Ananda, Swami developed profound arthritic hips and he walked with an enormous amount of pain for almost two decades. And then when he said, quite simply, Ananda was well established, he had his hips replaced. He could have had his hips replaced at any point, but he waited. He said, until, as he put it, I didn't feel I had to carry Ananda anymore. In other words, it was established. So when he went to India, he got sick really regularly, quite ill. And I happened to be visiting him once when a, a Swami, a different, another Swami from Rishikesh came to visit him in the hospital. And I don't even know why Swami was there, whatever his reasons were. Oh, he kept getting what, what they call congestive heart failure, which the first time I heard it is a horrible sounding phrase and isn't a good thing. But in his case, what it meant was that his extremities would begin to, to hold water and swell. And so they would have to take him to the hospital and immobilize him and put his feet up. Um, among other things, it was just to keep him from working. And there was this very sweet little hospital just a few blocks away that sort of became like a second home. They would just stroll in and everybody would greet him. He'd go up to his usual room and they had a whole system worked out. But when the Swami was there, this other Swami expressing concern to Swami Kriyananda about his physical condition, Swami Kriyananda said so breezily, oh, I'm just doing, don't worry about me, I'm just doing tapasya to get the work started here. So he just... No, for him it was like he knew what he was doing. He was drawing energy to a focus, using his body as the instrument of penance, but because his consciousness is quite separated from his body, for him it wasn't a difficulty in the same way. Now, at some point around around one of the winter times there, Swami developed double pneumonia and was actually was re- he really nearly died this time and just he just barely managed to get somebody's attention in the middle of the night and they, he was on the fifth, the fourth floor and they carried him down four flights of stairs and he was just ready to go. He was saying goodbye to everyone and was just ready to leave. But he didn't die. And he was in the hospital, though, with double pneumonia. Very, very sick. And uh, we, they arranged, I wasn't there, they arranged for uh, the woman who usually prepares his meals to bring his meals to him and there was, a, there was a couple of nurses there and they stayed with him. He was very well taken care of in addition to the hospital. But a doctor comes into the room. And Swamiji writes, you know, usually doctors say, how can I help you? But instead this doctor says to Swami, sir, can you help me? So Swami, you know, barely conscious, sort of opens his eyes and said, yes, of course. And the doctor explains how he's facing a terrible dilemma. Because he says he has a son in school in Canada. He has the expenses of his own family. And he said it's very, very difficult to make sufficient amount of money without doing things that are slightly, you know, unethical or undharmic. Dharma is the word, the word dharma, which is a marvelous word, means right action or that action which leads to higher consciousness. So that which is dharma is that which is in accord with divine law. That's very different because, for example, for some one person, their dharma may be to stay home and raise their children. But if someone really has a call to be a Himalayan yogi and God calls you and you have to leave your children, normally that would not be dharma, but in certain cases it could be dharma because it's a higher calling. So dharma is a very sensitive question. So this man is explaining that he has to break the rules of dharma in order to care for his family. And he, he knows that this is wrong, but he doesn't know what to do. So Swamiji tries 
to comfort him in certain ways and makes the simple statement which he always states, which is that I've never found that breaking the rules of Dharma ever bring me anything that I want. And there's a motto of Ananda which is called where there is Dharma, there is victory. And obviously the opposite of that is where there is not Dharma, there will not be victory, no matter what it appears to be. So then that night or the next day, Swamiji is lying there in his semi-conscious state virtually, and all of a sudden it occurs to him that what India really needs, you know, is not just Yogananda's statement of the ancient teachings, but it also needs to understand how to be dharmic and make money. That that really is the need of what's going on in that country because they want to be dharmic, but they have this tremendous need to make money as this whole economy begins to shift like all of us. And so it occurs to him, he said, just all in a flash, he had the inspiration for these lessons and Keshava, who, was, who has been his secretary in the past, he said, Keshava, get a pencil and a paper. And so from his hospital bed, he dictated the titles of the 26 lessons and then he dictated the whole introduction and the beginning of the first lesson. And then for the next year and a half, not always in the hospital, um, Swamiji just steadily worked through what turned out to be 26 lessons, material success through yogic principles. Now, what, when I read the lessons and you know, read them from the beginning, he would send them to us as he wrote them. For me, it was very interesting because what I saw in this, what I see in this, is it's an autobiography of Kriyananda. Um, even though he doesn't always use himself as the example, and he certainly doesn't tell stories of his childhood and his parents or anything like that. But Kriyananda's own personal story, even though he's a world-renouncing yogi, is an extremely interesting one because he's a very modern yogi. He's been responsible for the development of Ananda. I referred uh, earlier to 1962 when he was forcibly separated from Self-Realization Fellowship and, and kicked out of India and um, they, the government was told that he was a CIA agent and a Christian missionary. <laughs> An odd combination, but that's what they were told. And it took him a decade before he was able to get a visa to go back because they didn't really want either of those in their country. Um, but so in 1962, he'd been a monk since he was 22 years old. He had lived within the walls of a monastery, within the, the structure of a monastery. He'd spent four years in India where he was more independent. But he had... He was a real monk. I mean, he wasn't a Catholic monk, but he had no, he had no possessions. He got an allowance of $25 a month. He lived through the, the confines of this organization. He was suddenly kicked out. He was told not to contact any, any friend that he knew. He couldn't go back to India, which, he, which might have been a solution for him. He was given maybe $500. He was 36. And he ended up, as it happened, he was in New York City when this happened. His parents were on their way back from Europe. They lived, lived at that time in Atherton, California. They've now passed away. He, they were driving back across the country. He got in the backseat of their car, and he drove back to Atherton, and he, he took a room in their house. He's 36. He's penniless, essentially. $500 is not a lot of money. He's without a friend. He has no contacts, nothing. He, and he's all by himself, living in his parents' house, and they're feeding him and taking care of him. Nothing. All he had was his understanding of how to manifest through the power of yoga, which he'd learned from his guru. He, he was still a disciple. He still believed in the path that he was on, and he knew that there were principles that, that would work. And from that, now, and there are seven Ananda communities around the world. It's a huge worldwide organization. As, I, as we joke now, we go bankrupt at a much higher level than we used to. We still don't have much money, but we've manifested astonishing things. They're building a work in India. They have an extraordinary community in Assisi. Ananda Village is just unique in all the world. We have five or six of these city centers like this. And he was, it all started when he was completely by himself. And, he, and, he just, and, and we've never had a wealthy patron. We've never had... I mean, we've had donations, but, you know, every once in a while when we, somebody donates $50,000, that's an extraordinarily large amount of money to be donated to Ananda. So considering what we've managed to do, you know, it's, it's never been done by anything except the power of, to manifest through the principles of yoga. So what Swamiji started writing in this was how he did it. And I, I've, I've remarked on several occasions that if he had done it for personal gain, 
And he still has no money. I mean, millions of dollars literally have passed through his, his hands. He's earned it himself or it's been generated by the work that he's done and it just all goes back into Ananda. He still has no more in his bank account than he ever did. He's a monk. He's not interested. For a while, he took a salary of about $2,000 a month, but it, it, only because he felt it was appropriate to do so because the community was not sufficiently... It wasn't fair for him to continually support us. We also needed to support him. It wasn't the right flow of energy. So for five or six years, he took that, and then he finally just said no. People give him a great deal of money because in gratitude they do. But he always just, oh, now I can publish this book in India. Now I can build this building. Now I can set up this recording studio. It all just passes through his hands. If he'd kept it, he would be world famous as an incredible wealth producer. But because he did it selflessly for other reasons... He's not necessarily seen in that light, but then he wrote this course. Now, as you might expect, A Course in Material Success, written by a world-renouncing yogi, is a little different. It's not get your picture of your Cadillac and paste it on your wall. You know, it's just, this is not where we're going. Because the whole premise of this course is that what we're trying to do is, well, let me, let me put it a different way. Most people write about manifesting on the material plane and there's you know, many, many people who are very into this now and I don't object to anything they do. You know, it, it's all good work because it's trying to teach people that there's a more subtle level from which you can act. A more subtle level, you'll just keep getting more and more subtle. So, you know, things like that DVD, The Secret and lots and lots and lots of other things that are out. Some of them are not, some of them are not, uh, not as inspiring as others. But the basic principle is you have power within you and you should focus that power. And that's a very, very sound teaching. But of course, Swami Kriyananda's work is not to make people rich. His work is to bring people into attunement with God. But now, and this is part of, a fundamental part of Yogananda's teaching, is that we're moving into a new age and we can see it all around us. And we're moving out of the age of matter, which was called Kali Yuga, into the age of energy, which we call Dwapara Yuga. And that's what you see, form is giving way to energy. And the huge conflicts that you see in the world, among religious groups especially, is them trying to hold on to these rigid forms and, you know, society itself just rejecting them. And then this desperate fight to hold on to them because the age of matter is giving, giving way to the age of energy. There's a, a, a phenomenon that's now become commonplace, which is people no longer choose religions by denominations. They go where they feel inspired, right? The form doesn't matter so much to them. It's the energy that matters. Now, in the age of matter, which is almost all of our religious history and all of our monastic religious history, renunciate religious history, it was very much about the age of matter. Jesus lived... In, while, while the age of matter was still getting worse, the nadir of it was 500 um, A.D. I have to remember before or after he died, A.D., right? So the, all the early Christians were in this time when the, the world itself was operating on a pretty gross level. And it was pretty hard to sort of participate in that world and also be able to rise above it. So the, the attitude of spirituality was like the Desert Fathers. They just pushed it away and went off. They just went far away from it because it was just impossible to integrate the two. And so a great deal of, of spiritual thinking until recently, relatively recently, has always been very either-or. And even America and India were sort of manifestations of that. India was still spiritually rich but materially impoverished. America became materially rich but a little bit more and more confused spiritually and, you know, over-materialistic. And all of these things are now coming back into balance. But one of the things that's coming back into balance is that it's no longer necessary to reject the material world in order to embrace the spiritual world. Now, of course, any time there's a new shift, there's always an aberration with it. So now people are saying, the most spiritual thing you can do is become a millionaire. God wants you to be rich. You know, and the fact of the matter is God could care less whether you're rich or not. God doesn't want you to be rich. God wants you to be in tune with the divine spirit. And if you know, along the way you become rich, fine. But if you don't, it doesn't matter. But yes, you can learn to use the walls of the universe to a certain extent to, to impose your will on the world. And it's a, it's a stage. 
of feeling helpless to feeling powerful, but then there's a lot of stages beyond that. So what Kriyananda is also doing in writing these letter lessons is he's trying to explain to us how to, how to be spiritual and material at the same time and to recognize that they come together. I know what I was starting to say. But almost everyone who writes about material success essentially is rising up and, and most of them, and I'm, I don't mean to be global and I don't, even mean, I don't mean to be critical because I'm no expert, but it, this is my general impression. You know, an individual with a lot of magnetism and a lot of good karma, we'll talk about that in a little bit, and good karma and the ability to succeed, you know, discovers the principles of success and then teaches them to people. You know, here we are in the material world and this is how we can do it. Now, what Kriyananda is talking about is he's coming from a level totally transcending the material world, and he's descending, bringing that energy with him, and then talking about how you can manifest that energy in the world and make it work. So you see, it's a whole different perspective. And the entire premise of this is that the more we get in tune with that higher energy, the more subtle energy has power over the more gross energy. You see? So the whole, the whole idea is that by the more spiritually strong we become the more automatically we can manifest that energy in the world. And, and Yogananda said something very intriguing at one point. He said, all failure is a lack of attunement with divine will. And I, when, Swami, when I first read that, I said, Swamiji, but sometimes I, I say to people, am I wrong? You know, it's your karma to fail. He said, well, it's their karma to fail because they have to learn to succeed. Because when we're in tune with divine will, we act in complete harmony and it, it is true that God doesn't want us um, to be thwarted because we need to be able to raise our consciousness so that we're in total harmony with the Creator. And we're, when we're in total harmony with the Creator, that means we can create. We can create whatever vision or inspiration we see. But we don't get there without tapasya which is devotion and austerity, but austerity is not really austerity if it's done with devotion. In other words, energy has to be focused. So it's not a simple method, and it's not something that, that's why I'm not concerned about rushing through these classes, because if we can really deeply absorb these principles, we can, as Swami has this marvelous phrase in the middle here, you know, become deeply centered in ourselves and then control the flow of our lives from that center. And, and then we become, instead of merely being an effect of this material world, we become a cause. And when you really think about it, that's the whole thing, isn't it? Because what happens to us is we feel like it's being done to us. And no matter how we try, we can't really kind of get a grip on it to feel that what's happening is happening because I'm doing it, or God is doing it through me, or however you want to think about it. But it's just the difference between being an effect of circumstances or being the cause of your circumstances. Now, you know, it's, lots, it's hard thinking about being a cause because lots of things happen to us that we don't have any recollection of why they would happen to us. And that will bring me into the actual content of this lesson. So having said all of that, that I think sets us up pretty much for what we're going to be doing here in the next many weeks, are there any questions or thoughts or comments before I go forward from there? Okay. When Swamiji was writing these lessons, as I was mentioning to you, he was sending them out as he was finishing them to some, some of us to review and get, get comments and also just kind of to keep the flow going. Um, and I read them all. I read them all carefully. I've read them more than once. But I had to admit to myself, I've never, I never wholly grasped sort of the whole picture of what he's doing. So for me, this is... Um, one of the reasons I took this on about 10 years ago, I really started taking one book after another of Swami Kriyananda's and doing a study, study classes like this. It's because, number one, I realized that I wasn't grasping the wholeness of what he was writing, and it occurred to me that if I wasn't getting it, probably a lot of other people weren't getting it. And also, for, the sheer, for, for what I knew would be the deepening of personal understanding that would come when I would read it for the sake of sharing it with others because a certain grace comes in. So I picked up lesson number one and I started reading it today and immediately I began to 
sort of see what Swamiji was doing and where we were going to go with this. And so I want to just start with the introduction of this and, and talk a little bit about it. Um, it's with, you know, here he is talking about material success. And he even puts a picture of the New York City skyline on the front here, which is, a, to my, in my opinion, a terribly ugly cover, but that was supposed to be the idea. Um, and then at the very beginning, he starts saying there are three main philosophies of India, and he describes Shankya, Vedanta, and Yoga. Now, this is not really your average aspiring millionaire doesn't really start with the three main philosophies of yoga, especially because the first of those philosophies, which is called Shankya, is about the illusory nature of the world and the fact that no matter what you do, you will never find happiness in this world. <laughs> I mean, it just like, it, it seems like a, a pretty counterproductive beginning. It seems like you're not going to order lesson two after that. I mean, why would you even do that, right? <laughs> but what he's explaining here, and I will repeat it just to make sure that we all really understand it. This is one of the, uh, Yogananda cuts through a lot of conundrums that puzzle Indian scholars. And you'll find in these lessons, because they were written for an Indian audience, there are certain assumptions sometimes made. He'll make references to some of the Indian epics, to some of the gods and goddesses, without any explanation, because he's writing to an audience that he expects to know. The three philosophies of India, um, Shankya, Vedanta, and Yoga, are, are generally familiar to many people. The current generation doesn't know but up until very recently, everyone just knew. And there's all this conflict about these three philosophies being competing schools of thought and which one is really the right one. And Yogananda cut through all of this, and this is what Swami presents, that they're sequential. The Shankya philosophy explains why this world is ephemeral, and no matter how much we try to fix it in some way, that produces the conditions that we define as making us happy, that sooner or later those conditions are going to slip away from us. That's the first part of it, that the world quite simply is not enduring. I mean, all of us know this. I, I was joking with you earlier, I, I guess I said it in this class here, about Swami Kriyananda referring to his old friends. And we wanted to be long-time friends, and he called us old friends. You know, that's just what we are. We see it happening around us. Uh, my birthday was just recently, and somebody sent me one of those e-cards, but it came from a completely other planet than the e-cards usually come from. This this e-card was a singing sock. And it was a hand puppet, one of those little YouTube things, a little hand puppet. You know, it was a sock, just a sock. And there was somebody's hand in there like this. And the the sock sings. And it just sings, you know, happy birthday in this just outrageous manner. And at one point it goes into the melody. It says, you were born a long time ago, a long, 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 long time ago, you know. And it goes on. It was totally wacky. And it was a perfect card for me. Just completely nuts. But, you know, there it is. It's just like all of us are watching this process. I'm old enough now that I'm startled. I'm just startled by how time has gone by. Where has it gone? You know, I'm startled by the fact that I literally can't open jars like I used to be able to open jars. Like, where has it gone? You know, and I'm relatively fit and I still energize, but it's just, it's not there anymore. It's just gone. And how many, I don't know how many of you, how many people have raised small children and had a wonderful time raising their small children and then they're gone, you know, or had a perfect job and then it's gone or had perfect health and then it's gone. Now, the, the reason that we reincarnate over and over again is really not because life is such a bummer. If life were a total bummer, we would have no interest in coming back. It's that it almost works. That's what's so incredible about it. It almost works. It was almost just perfect. And if I could just shift a couple of elements, you know, if I could just marry the, my husband's brother instead of my husband, you know... <laughs> If I just didn't have that baby when I was 16, you know, if I'd just been become a banker like my father wanted me to or an artist like I wanted to, you know, just tweak, 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 tweak here. If I was just a little taller, if I wasn't so fat, you know, whatever it is. So we try again. And then it almost works. And then we try it again. Until gradually, in Autobiography of a Yogi, it says, the whole thing assumes a certain anguishing monotony. That's an incredible phrase, anguishing monotony. You know, tragedy is energizing, but it's the sheer anguishing monotony of it that really gets us after a while, isn't it? And at a certain point, 
because divine truth is implanted within us and because we are made from the spirit and because there is this heart, this soul longing for divine happiness that will never, never really become silent, gradually, after enough experience, and this is the law of karma that I'll talk about tonight or another night, we gradually begin to think a little differently. You know, maybe it isn't so much about having everything together out there. Maybe it's more about how I relate to the world. Maybe it's more about my consciousness. And do you know, many of us get better and better at this, and earlier and earlier in our incarnation, we catch the wave. When I look back now, I realize that one of my earliest memories, when I was a child small enough to curl up on the floor of the back seat of the car on one side of it, because my mother scolded me, and she hurt my feelings. And I didn't like having my feelings hurt, so I curled up on the back seat of the car. And I knew that there was a place inside of me that if I just kept going deeper and deeper inside, I would find the place where everything was fine and the hurt wouldn't exist anymore. And that wasn't, you know, a contraction of consciousness. It was really a yogic memory of just understanding that there's bliss inside of me and I don't have to be subject to this world. I mean, there was a lot of years in between before I, I really got that going again. But we all, all of us, and many, many people tell me of their childhood and what they knew as children, and often what they lost in the middle, and then what they come back to. Because over many incarnations, our attention gradually turns in the right way. The Shankya philosophy explains in great detail how and why this world is delusory and we will never really find our happiness as long as we're looking outward. Okay, now that's a, a great thing to say, but what, what do you do about that? But we also have to appreciate that no one is going to become interested in changing their inner reality until they become persuaded that the outer reality is not going to make us happy. Because it's the outer that we see first. We get it through our senses. Everything confirms its reality. So it's impossible to persuade people to turn inward until some element of the Shankya philosophy, whether you ever call it that or not, has become your own. When we've tried to, like, f- try, try to find a unifying thread about why people would come to Ananda and even more importantly why they would want to continue uh, learning what's, or being part of what's going on here, the unifying thread is that somewhere along the way they have figured out that it's about their inner consciousness. And when you, when you finally get, however inchoate that thought is, that this is about my inner consciousness, I mean life is about my inner consciousness, then you can come to a place like this and it begins to make sense to you. But if you're still thinking it's just all about getting it all organized and like that, then you haven't understood the Shankya philosophy. Because the second step is yoga. And yoga is the techniques and practices that tell you, okay, if the outside world is too ephemeral for me to rely upon it, then how do I gain stability in the inner world? Because often the inner world is just as much of a mess too. It's just totally subject to likes and dislikes and moods and fears and subconscious impressions and past life. This is and just, it's a big mess in there. So a lot of people are extremely keen on the external world because God, who wants to be alone with this? And, and our society is is deeply committed to that idea. So it's always noisy everywhere you go. And you can't even pump your gas now without there being a television screen and music playing. Because as one of my friends says, God forbid for even a moment you should be alone with your thoughts. Right? But at the point that you realize that I've got to master those that inner reality, and in the Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, which is like the textbook of yoga practice, the first word is now. Now we come to the practice of yoga. And Yogananda explains that you can't even come to the practice of yoga. And I don't just mean yoga postures. I mean the whole art and science of inner consciousness. You don't even come to it until you have understood the Shankya philosophy. And you don't have to know a word, as I say, of the formality of it, but you've understood it. Now, I'm willing to undertake the personal discipline necessary to reverse this constant outward direction of my energy and begin to develop my inner self. And, the, and a yoga is, is supremely practical. It's all, of the, all methods of meditation, all methods of prayer, all methods of devotion, 
and yoga postures and physical health and all these different things. Now we come to this practice. Now we begin to develop ourselves. Okay? And then the third uh, philosophy is Vedanta. And Vedanta is the philosophical statement of the nature of what the world really is. Shankya tells you what it isn't, in essence. Yoga tells you what to do about that. And Vedanta tells you where you're going. It explains about how all these seeming differences merge into the one spirit and how all of this variety was manifested out of the one spirit. And it explains how individual consciousness can become attuned to that one spirit again and in that stillness, you know, find that satisfaction that never comes to us when we're always involved in the multitude, multitudes of it. And Swamiji explains that Vedanta also is related to yoga because Vedanta puts clearly in front of you what, what, what it is that you're trying to attain and can keep us from getting caught in thinking that the mere strengthening and expansioning of the ego and the increasing of ego power to have control over the world around us is the same as self-realization. In other words, we know there's, there is a higher reality than just our own likes and dislikes because some people get very powerful inside, but then they get slightly distracted because you see people who have, well, they have real yogic power, but they're using that power to gain mastery over people and money and situations. And, and you see them around, you know, they're, they're very almost uncannily successful people sometimes. But it's all about self-aggrandizement because they've either in previous lives or intuitively, they've mastered some of the yogic methods of gaining energy, but they haven't understood the Vedanta. They don't understand that their happiness comes not from using that to make a super powerful ego, but to using that to, to transcend the ego altogether and merge into that infinite power, which is our true self. Okay, now I'm going to take a break, and then I'll come back for questions, and then I'll go on from there. Um, do we have any questions or comments or thoughts before I barrel forward? I can see that we're going to still be on this lesson next week and that we're not even going to get to the affirmation or anything tonight. We're going to get through the introduction. But then next week I'll dive right into the lesson. And then we'll, these lessons each have um, both the lesson, then there's a meditation that goes with it, there's an affirmation, and then there's some suggested actions. And starting next week we'll get more engaged in all of that. I knew it would take me a while to get into it. So, talking about the Vedanta philosophy and talking about yoga, Swami sets up some points here that are really interesting. What he's talking about is a fundamental aspect of the Shankya philosophy is to explain that the source of the great deal of the misery that we experience in life is because we have identified ourselves really with our physical bodies and, the, and uh, Yogananda defined ego as the infinite self identified with the physical body. It's an extremely subtle definition because ego is not so much an enemy as just a particular limited state of awareness. Um, I, as it happened, this was my subject yesterday at Sunday service, so for some of you I'm repeating this, but it bears repeating. Um, the word identify is an extremely interesting word because it's not as if our essential reality ever actually shifts. We are always infinite in our consciousness. But because we have identified with this body, and because the body is born at a certain time, because it ages, and then because, as Swami writes here, from the very beginning we experience life through the information that are brought into us by our senses. And because our senses are, are connected to our body, and because that's our primary way of getting information. We hear, we see, we touch, and then we taste and we smell also. But those are, these are the bigger ones. You watch a baby, a little baby trying to figure out what's going on. And Swami writes in a very interesting way in this introduction how a baby necessarily is intensely involved with the material world. It has to be because it has to get grounded in that reality. He also describes how a child is intensely involved in itself because it's trying at all times to integrate this information that the senses are bringing it and then figure out what the implications of that are. 
And so the child has to learn, you know, just fundamental things, how to control its bodily functions, how to eat, what's edible and what's poisonous, you know, um, how to, how, what language it's supposed to speak and how to put those words together and who's, a, who's its mommy and who's its brother and who, it, who is me. All these just very basic questions. And we, we struggle because we're, we're outwardly focused and all this information comes to us through our senses. And because our, under, our learning comes through our senses, we can only learn where our body is located. Until, of course, we've transcended that limitation. But as long as we're identified with the body, we're not conscious of, the cap- of our higher capabilities. We just live wherever the senses are. So we're here, and I traveled a great deal the last two months. I was in India, I was in Europe. I can picture the places that I was, I can remember what they look like, but the information of my senses is only in this room. And this is all I really know. If I had, had completely transcended my limited identify, identity with this body and could live in my superconscious, I could not only remember those places, but I could expand my consciousness to actually be there. Um, I might be able, because of you know, a certain amount of freedom, to have an intuitive feeling about what someone at a great distance might be doing. But all of that is when we begin to move a little outside of the senses. Most of the time, the senses are our reality. And so, let me just say, there was one... Let me just... Oh, yes, and then he says reason's limited ability to process that information. There were, two, there were two limiting factors. One is we get the information through the senses, and the second is that reason can only process it to a certain extent and gets a little confused about what this world really means to us. So we become deeply identified with this body, and as a consequence, we feel ourselves very separate. And all of our fears and all of our anxieties all stem from the fact that we identify with this body. Where will it live? How will it eat? Who will it live with? How will it be respected by its neighbors? How will it live up to its obligations? Where will it work? How will it get money? Whether Will it be cold? Will it be too hot? Will it be sad? Will it be alone? Will it die by itself? Will it be left alone in its old age? Will its mother take care of it? You see, it's all about that identity. Now, um, Vedanta tells us that in truth... We are just a little pinprick. I mean, there's many different ways in which those images are described. Um, not the, one, that, one that I just heard, which is so obvious, is, you know, we're all light bulbs. And, we're, and it's the electricity that gives us our life force. We're all unified by the electricity, but we identify as the light bulb. And we don't really realize that really it's the electricity that makes us what we are. This is just a little form to hold it, right? Or we're all the... Uh, the, the gas coming into a stove and all those little individual jets of gas and we think that's who we are or the waves on the ocean. We're bobbing around and we identify with being that little wave and so we imagine ourselves, imagine if you're just the little wave and you go up and you go down and you crash against the rocks and you get pulled onto the beach and then you're pulled off of the beach and you're all the time struggling to maintain the position of that little wave and there's all these forces that are making it so hard, but as long as you're just that little wave, you see how terribly insecure that position is. And of course, when we stand back and watch the ocean, we realize, well, the waves are merely a manifestation of the ocean. They were never separate. And when the saints look at us, so anxious about our little selves, and they just watch us being just a wave on the ocean of consciousness and see us so worried about our little wave, we look just as ludicrous to them, Right? I mean, they look at us kindly, but our, our point of view is just as childish. So the entire practice of yoga is the practice of withdrawing our commitment a little bit from those senses and beginning, because as we withdraw it a little bit, we tune in to deeper, um, what you might call, organs of knowing, deeper capacities to know. Now, all of us stumble onto these things. You'll be out in nature on a camping trip and you'll just be out at some quiet lake and it will just come into your consciousness. We have a festival of light and this is a phrase we often say, I am part of all that is. Just this sudden dissolution of all this smallness. And there's a, uh, and, and one will have the sense, I'll never forget this. I will always remember how strong and free I am. But then habit takes over. 
or at the birth of a child or the death of a loved one. It's like the curtain parts. And it's not merely that we have the idea, we know, we experience that there's another reality. And when that happens enough, and when the Shankya philosophy begins to penetrate and we begin to, to quest after that, and, and follow the techniques that actually give that to us, then what happens is the, the, the profound and limited identity of self as body and therefore ego begins to become a smaller unit within this greater whole. And of course what begins to happen is we begin to recognize that all those people out there are the same as me. Now, in an extreme example, people who commit heinous crimes, violent crimes against other people or un- unspeakable breaches of trust like we've seen uh, in some of these uh, financial people who just think that I can just take from myself from all of you and you're nothing to me. And people are at that s- a state of consciousness where they really identify so strongly with their own ego and their own body that they really don't know that there are people out there. I heard a most int- I read a most intriguing article of a woman whose son was murdered and eventually, in an attempt to get peace, went to the prison to visit the man who killed him. And she was astonished to appreciate that the man had no idea anything about the reality of the person he'd killed. And she ended up developing this huge ministry to imprison murderers to just help them understand that there's somebody out there, right? Now, the more we, as Swamiji describes it, expand our sympathies to embrace more and more of the universe, the less and less tightly the ego grips us because we begin to see, well, this person in that body, he has the same feelings I do and and then we begin to begin to care for others in the way we care for ourselves. You know, oh, I'll just give him this beautiful present. And we begin with the people that are our family or that are close to us for some reason. And that's how we practice. But what we're actually doing is we're breaking that sense of identity with the limited self. And we start doing it by individuals. But then after a time, it just becomes an awareness that everyone in the world is my own. And again, that's why in this Festival of Light, we say over and over again, you are part of all that is. Share with others as you have received, for you are a part of all that is. And you you say that in your mind again and again, and gradually you begin to identify with that. And you still may have responsibility for this body, but it's quite different to have responsibility for it than it is to identify with it. Okay? Now Swamiji writes that there's two ways to expand beyond the ego. One is to withdraw completely from this external world and just... Um, go go within without any distractions. The other is to expand our sense of sympathy more and more until we embrace the world. Now, the more we embrace the world as our own, the, the closer we're living to actual truth. And the closer we're living to truth, the more power we have from that position to influence. So where he's going with all of this, which I began to see, is you have to have these basic principles in place before he can teach you the power of manifestation according to yoga. Because this is the power of yoga. First I understand the ephemeral nature of the world. Then I understand that by self-discipline, according to certain techniques, I can contact a more lasting reality within me Then Vedanta explains what that reality is. And that picture that he paints is that I am a part of all. And more than that, that my welfare is intimately connected to everyone else's welfare. The, um, there's just two more thoughts that I want to say. I was almost ready to stop, but just two more thoughts. One is, one of the things that he mentions in, in co- the context of how Vedanta saves us from going in the wrong direction is he said, even those who are non-dualists, as it's called, or deeply devoted to the Vedanta philosophy of it all being one and our own nature being one with the infinite, still recognizes the great danger of if we become too focused on our own potential that 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 attention can slip too easily into the ego without our even realizing it. And therefore, even those who emphasize strongly that it is our true nature and we are really one with the infinite, they also emphasize the necessity to be devoted 
to the idea that there is a God that is a separate reality because that keeps us humble. And so a great deal that comes up through the rest of this course also presumes that what they call the I-thou relationship. Even though the power is our own, even though we will eventually come to realize that that which we call God and, and are devoted to is separate from us is really just an extension of our own consciousness, the identification with the ego self is so great and so s- sneaky is the actual word I want to use that it's, it's not, not safe to meditate only on I am God. It's much better to motivate, to much, much more dynamic to meditate on the idea that there's a power greater than ourselves to which we are devoted and by our love we gradually draw closer and closer to that. We can deal with that idea as it appears as we progress through these lessons, but I did also want to just put that into this thought. And then the last thought that I wanted to speak to was, let me just find it right where it is. Oh, I know what he was saying here. Generally speaking, we think of yoga as the practice of inner techniques. We teach Kriya Yoga here, which is a method of raising the kundalini energy, um, resolving the karma in the chakras, and bringing our attention to a strong focus at the spiritual eye. And we tend to think of yogic techniques, even hatha yoga, you know, you're doing it for the internal experience. You're strengthening your body, but it's the internal energy. But what Swamiji is describing here is what he calls the yogic techniques on the field of action. Because it's necessary, Swami describes to us, and it is necessary, to become dynamic in our understanding of these teachings, partly to prove it to ourselves to prove to ourselves that we really know it, and also because it's a, it's a level of mastery. It's one thing to be able to sort of be quietly all by ourselves and feel that we have these understandings, but it's quite another to be able to hold it in the, the raging currents of maya, so to speak, in the force of this world which is pushing and pulling us. That's where our strength really comes. If we never test ourselves, against the powers to to draw us away from our understanding, how will we ever really develop our strength? I've very briefly at periods of my time of my life gone to the gym. It's not something that I enjoy. So I swim and I walk and it's much more interesting to me. But you know, you go and you work on these machines and you push on things and lift things and all that that you do. And the more strong you get, the more you increase the pressure on you. Because if you go and do what I would do, which is just push the same little things back and forth because the whole concept was just too boring for me to relate to, you never really make any progress. And you see the really strong, you know, especially men, but also women, you know, coming in and you just watch them pile all the weights on and then they work so hard, you know, to succeed and they're so proud of themselves when they're just dripping with sweat and they've done this and they never feel oppressed by that. It's because that's how they understand that they're going to get strong. Now, we, by contrast, when we're really building strength that's going to last a lot longer than these bodies are going to last. One of my friends recently was just speaking to a group of young people. He said, enjoy those pretty young bodies before they're all gone, is what he said. Just very, sort of very, um, very uh, much of a renunciate, just like it comes and goes. We never feel oppressed. That's what you're trying to do. So the Shankya philosophy teaches us this world is ephemeral. We need to gain strength in the eternal. So we start these yogic techniques in order to gain strength in the eternal, to be able to realize the principles to, because the principles of Vedanta are not dogmas, they're experiences. In order to experience what Vedanta tells us is is true. And in order to experience it, we have to keep challenging our capacity to remain identified with the infinite despite all the information coming in through the senses and all the faulty reasoning that tells us that we shouldn't. And it's not given to many of us, and if you are, you're not going to be sitting here, to just go off into a cave and go into such a high state of consciousness that you can work out all that karma without ever leaving your cave. Most of the rest of us have to be in actual interaction with the world. So now what we're trying to learn is we're taking those very same techniques of yoga and we're carrying them out into the marketplace, into our relationships, into our creative work, into our necessity to make money, which is one of the things we're focusing on here. And we're using that same technique of saying strongly identified with the infinite in the swirling currents because if we can stand without losing and becoming distracted, then you really have it. And also... When you have that, then the river obeys you. 
And instead of you're just being tossed helplessly like a pebble in the stream, which is a way to learn because you get smashed enough times and gradually, you know, you begin to figure it out. But what we're really trying to be is to be the rock that's planted around which the river divides. Because until we, ha- until we have that, we're vulnerable and we know it. It's as simple as that. Now that's why you see, with all due respect, on the face of some doctors, you know, who think that they're actually in charge of life and death. You either see this extraordinary egoic bravado or you see underneath it all tremendous fear because they know they're not. You know that, but the good doctors know that they're an instrument and they're, just, they don't, they're not confused and they live in that swirling mass and they just act as an instrument. That's really what it is that we're trying to learn, all of us. And that's what we're going to learn through this study. So that's the end of my presentation for tonight. If anyone do have any questions or comments that uh, relate to what we've discussed now. Okay. If you haven't yet obtained lesson one, please try to get it, read it, and I will start with the lesson itself, and then we'll gradually develop some method or another of uh, working with the meditations, the affirmations, the action points, and all of that. Okay? 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 Okay?